The Intermediate Line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. Hi, this is Mark from Flying High Flies with a public service announcement coming from experience. If you use the hashtags greenweed, weed, greenweed flies or any other weed related hashtags, expect to get follows from unsavoury characters. Now over to Australia's biggest unsavoury characters, Chris and Volts with the Intermediate Line. This episode of the Intermediate Line is brought to you by Nervous Water. For all your premium fly fishing requirements, please visit nervouswater.com.au. And Beast Brushes, Australian-made brushes and dubbing, professionally graded natural materials, plus a full shop for all of your fly tying needs at beastbrushes.com. Just hang on, I'll just put the fan on. Right. It's only got to three. Three? Yeah, I wanted to have four. That really fucking stinks, man. Welcome back, listeners. <laughs> and if you're wondering why something stinks when we uh, record, we normally record remotely, we are now actually facing each other mm-hmm. because we learnt from the last time we went fishing to record a podcast from the iPhone in your top pocket. It didn't work as well as our new shiny lapel mics. What do you think? Well, over, over to you, Volts. <laughs> <laughs> do you need a microphone or something like that? Is that going to make you feel better? No, no, no. I'm all good, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with this technology. Yeah. It's good. I wish we had it sooner, right? Eh? Are you yeah. having trouble with eye contact right now? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Pretty, Is it pretty the glasses? Awkward. Yeah. I'm, How's that? Is that better? To, yeah. Yeah. Look, just, just for your reference, you know, maybe you might get more romantic action without the glasses. You know? Oh, yeah. thanks, mate. While we're on the subject of appearance, I want people to know that the person I'm looking at at the moment Kind of looks like a uh, <laughs> kind of looks like a, a used car salesman who's like midnight as rendezvous as a as a uh, mortician, you know, that might be um, um, you know addicted to embalming fluid or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the idea. <laughs> What's going? I'm just paint a pitch for you, yeah, folks. Yeah. yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, you, yeah, you're like struggling. I... I can tell it's not something I often see. The look on Volty's face right now, while he struggles to make a uh, a reasonable comeback. You know? Yeah, I don't let, have just one. Let it go, mate. Let it go. Yeah. Hey, um. We've got a pretty exciting guest tonight, hey? We do, yeah. Yeah, um, 
one of the captains of industry. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing your favor. You don't have to worry about that comeback now. It's good. We just move on to the guests. And but uh, yeah, no, you're right. We do have a um, a captain of industry as such. That's for sure. Um, you'll know from the advertising that we've got um, Brooks Robinson on, who actually don't know what his position is in Cortland. Did he tell us in the show? We've record. We're recording this outro intro after the fact. We've already listened to it. We already yeah. know it's a banger. You know what he did? I wrote it down. Mm. I can't remember. I think it was VP. Yeah. Yeah, he was... Vice President of the Cortland Company. Yeah, he was very high up, very Mm. far up the ladder. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, he's very generous with his time. Mm. Hell of a nice guy. Yeah. Um, before we get going, just a, a little bit of an intro thing, I suppose. Um, you know, I just thought I'd, uh, I'd, I'd play a little bit of a, a game, like, to see if you know what it is, um, so to speak. Like, you can see the materials laid out. I've got you on the floor. We're sitting across the deck of my boat right now, and you can see some materials. First of all, I wanted to show you my Indian cock cape. <laughs> Sorry? My Indian cock cape. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen an Indian cock cape before? <laughs> 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 yeah. I've, I've seen some, uh, not very many, but I've seen some wicked looking jungle cock capes. Have you really? Well, this is an Indian yeah. cock cape. How, how is that different? Different bird? Well, this is a, a cock, you know, like the, yeah. the cape, of, cape of a cock. Sure. Uh, or rooster, if you like, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's commonly used for crab claws in, in, in the, uh, for people with terminology, saltwater fly tying, you know. Salt, saltwater fly tying. That's, uh, that's what people who um, fish for freshwater fly time, fish for fly fishing, you know. So uh, two things here is: mm. are they having their, um, are they letting the amount of uh, salinity in the water define their, their fly <laughs> fishing? Are they? Or? I don't know. I yeah. don't know if what happens if they get confused in brackish or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. other thing is, did you say cock is a rooster, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Okay. I. I didn't know that, but I, I, you know, I can see why uh, uh, Red Rooster was named that because you know nobody had eat red cock. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, you're that's yeah. it, right? It would look like something's wrong with it for sure. Mm. The meat is usually white from rooster, right? Um, can you think of any other terms <laughs> where where cocks used to describe something? I don't know, man. I'll um, tell you one. Yeah, what? The hose cock off the end of a house, you know, where your where your tap mm. is. That's a that's another one. Oh, shuttle yeah. cock. Yeah, Badminton, shuttle cock. Like oh. Stephen Gregory. Come yeah. up with some great stuff. None yeah. of those have got capes, though. None of them are superheroes or anything like that. But I'll tell you what, I will show you this thing, man. <laughs> I got this um, <laughs> I got this bag here. What's that thing? Well, have a look. You've seen I picked up with bare bare hands. It's not not dangerous. Can you tell what it is? It's a tail. It's a tail. Yeah. It's a tail of some sort of animal. Is it a canine? Uh, no. Is it a horse? No, it's not a horse. I don't actually. I'm 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 going through. I'm pretty sure it's not a canine. Sort of looks like uh, bucktailish. Does look very bucktailish. That's what appeals to me about. Which I was interested to see your thoughts. And you can confirm you've never you've never seen this out of a plastic bag before. This is the first time. Yeah, you've no, it, it yeah. smells like naphthalene. Yeah, well, it's been it's been clean. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Two tone, white base, black tip, or dark brown tip. Um, I'm telling you right now, you could substitute this appropriately for bucktail, assuming the colour matched. Yeah. Um, no, t- well, I can tell you the reason I have that is from the guy who got acquired that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of the discussion. Okay. It is. It is. We've talked about things like Nyat being a very, a very close substitute for Bucktail, which it is. Yeah. Um, but this one, you would you would put Bucktail in the middle between 
um, this particular tail and and um, and Nyat, yeah. you know, I think. But I'm getting some more of it because I don't know if there's any variation. This is the first time I've ever held the tail from this animal. It's got under fur. Yep. More near the uh, near the butt than the tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, ooh, it's quite long. There's a lot of material here. Mm. Well, for the sake of pod, like, audio podcast, we might just sort of yeah. get you to put a guess in. Um, coyote? No, it's not coyote. Coyote's not this color. This is like you said. It's like a like a, a light tan with uh, with black tips or what would normally be regarded as white. So let me let me ask you this. You know, we get to the conclusion. Is there any animals in the wild that you can think of that got a black tail with a white stripe? Skunk. Yep. That's what this wow. is. This really? is a skunk's tail, yeah. And, wow. Uh, and uh, and like, wow, look at it, eh? Like, I mean, the, the hair's usable all the way around. It's the most, it's so close to bucktail, it's not funny. And it's all five to six inches all the way around. It's pretty good, eh? Wow. You know? But um, it's got that two-tone color, which um, some people will probably like for creativity. But uh, yeah. Um, it's got it's got a, uh, I mean, it comes with a, a genuine piss stain there. I don't know if that's piss or... Um, the underfur that you picked on around the base of the tail, which I'm not really going to touch, is probably really close to those uh, defensive glands. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so maybe wash your hands before you eat a survey pie on the way home. Yeah. yeah? Okay, yeah. yeah. Good advice. Sound yeah. advice. <laughs> what did it taste like? <laughs> oh, apparently, it's going to taste really nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, our friends in the US that are listening right now will probably know that they're quite prolific, more prolific than I thought of, which makes them uh, quite a viable product yeah. for uh, fly tying if it works out. But, um, but, yeah, I think it's pretty um, pretty interesting how similar it is to what we used to. Yeah, mm. interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So there you go. Now we've just played the first uh, edition of What Is It? Um, yeah, as it turned out to be a skunk tail. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, did you enjoy playing? <laughs> it was unique. It's not a game I play in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just relying on your sense of smell. But yeah, as soon as you can, uh, you know, see it, rather than smell it or touch it mm. yeah it's um yeah you could imagine if you were a younger human being that you might get put off just for the knowing knowing that it's a skunk and let me tell you a little story that uh my daughter she's 11 and mm. um she's into playing her ipad and when she's fixed on those games and stuff mm. it's very hard to distract her so i came up when i unbagged this for the first time and wiggle it under her nose and just get does that tickle and she's mm. like go away and i'm like do you know what that is and i, and I did it again she said no go away and then she grabbed it with a hand, and she was like trying to figure out what it was, like, like had a, you know, um, yeah, what figure out what it was just by touching it. Going, do you know what that is? She yeah. goes, no, it says a skunk tail. Man, it didn't talk to me for two days. What? Really? <laughs> you got another one? I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. So yeah, I mean, I can, I could, I could either advertise these as, um, you know, children deterrents, yeah, free time creators, or flight time products. I'm gonna need three of them. Yeah. I've got two kids and a wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> No, apparently it takes a little bit to wash them. Like, um, oh, yeah. um, the guy who I got him off told me that it smelt a lot like, um, I believe the kids call it marijuana, right? Um, in its natural state. Um, right. Not that I'd be aware of what that smells like. Um, uh, I, I'm, um, I just believe some of the hippie kids. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've always into fishing. Um, all right. Well, look, let's put this cock cape away and this skunk tail. And shall we get the guest on it? Yeah, we're looking forward to it. But surely... Yeah, put it away, Chris. Okay. Bring on the fire! Welcome back, listeners, to the Intermediate Line. 
we're very honoured today to be joined by a very special guest um, from the Cortland Line Company, bring us the great Cortland Fly Lines. We're joined by Brooks Robinson. Welcome to the show, Brooks. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Brooks. We've been pretty excited about having you on for a while. We've um, famously tried to uh, do podcasts in regards to fly lines and failed epically in the past, trying to cater to everyone and being very rounded. Um, so we've got the big guns on in that respect today, and we're quite looking forward to um, to talking about uh, Cortland Lines and the development and a bit more about Cortland and yourself. But let's just start off from the start. And why don't you tell us how you, uh, how you end up in the position you are with Cortland? Uh, great question. Um, so I was I was born in Cortland, New York, where the Cortland office and manufacturing plant is. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up about 10 minutes up the road on a small private lake uh, with my parents. Went to school real close by. Went to college real close by. Um, blew out my knee playing lacrosse. And you guys play lacrosse? Yeah, uh, we have that, Danny. Well, I haven't played it, but we got it. You would have yeah, didn't you? Yeah. No. I, I got a bunch of friends that have, uh, I think, tried out for the Australian national team. Um, so anyways, I, I I blew out my knee playing summer league lacrosse like an idiot with no health insurance. So I was out of work. I had no knee. And a buddy of mine that was working at Cortland uh, called me one day at like 6.30 in the morning. I was jumping on a boat to go steelhead fishing. He's like, yo, you want a job? I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right, meet me tomorrow in Cortland. And I didn't even know what the job was for. So I started working at Cortland Line, uh, mixing fly line in the manufacturing department. And I did that for about a year and a half. And through some different management changes and, you know, having a decent head on my shoulders, I, I slowly worked up to working in the office, managing um, our pro staff, social media, trade shows, uh, eventually started doing product, product development, um, came into that role as a product development team lead, um, basically took over a sales rep territory for the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic United States. I work with our marketing department very closely, obviously. Uh, I'll, I'll ship stuff if our short staff on shipping, I'll clean toilets, I'll sweep the parking lot, uh, I wear a lot of hats at Cortland. So um, yeah, I pretty much, I do it all like a lot of us do at Cortland. Uh, it, it, it is a small company. Obviously, we're big in the sense of, you know, world presence, you know, as far as fly fishing goes and, and conventional fishing. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a crazy jersey, uh, journey, but I, I am a local boy to Cortland and I live about half an hour north of Cortland where, where we live today. And I'll probably never move. I love it here and hopefully want to keep it that way. Oh, that's awesome. That's really interesting. I think I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that uh, Cortland, the Cortland Fly Line, or the Cortland Line Company is named after the town where it's it, it started, right? Is that where it started, right? Yeah, we people call us all the time. They're like, I can't believe they named the city after your company. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 bro. It's the other way around. But yeah, um, at one point, our our factory, our company was probably one of, if not the largest employer in the city of Cortland. It's, it's not a very big city. I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that there's big, tall buildings everywhere, but it is technically a city. Um, I don't know what the population is in Cortland, but uh, when we transitioned our braiders, um, we have a big braiding facility at Cortland. We braid super braids, inshore braid, offshore braid. Uh, we braid, obviously, backing. 
um, both gel spun, micron, dacron backing. So, uh, and, and years ago, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, we had braided um, different ropes, uh, braided silk. Uh, that's how the original fly lines were, it was braided silk. Mm. And during World War II, we transitioned all of our braiders over to um, wartime effort goods. So Cortland started braiding uh, bomb cord, parachute rope, bootlace rope, candle wicks, <laughs> Uh, you name it, anything that needed to be braided for the war, Cortland did. So we obviously employed a ton of people during that time frame, uh, probably in like the 1940s and whatnot, and then eventually transitioned back to fishing goods and outdoor goods and braided fishing line products. So um, kind of a crazy long journey. We've, we've been in uh, business since 1915. Um, we are, I think, in our second facility. So uh, the first one was like a half mile down the road. We kind of outgrew that and moved to a second one. And that's where we've been since, I believe, the 80s. Uh, I believe it's just two facilities, yeah, since the 80s. And that's where we are today. Well, wow. how, how many people you got working there now? Uh, we have a little over 30 in the manufacturing facility, um, probably about a dozen in the office. We have a few employees that work remotely um, in the United States, a couple in Arkansas, a couple in Texas, a couple in Florida, and then obviously our independent sales force, um, as well as, you know, an international uh, sales force. So uh, as far as technical employees in the facility, like I said, about 30 in the manufacturing plant, probably about another 10 to 12 in the office. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah. So um, with that in mind, like, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a fairly, you know, sizable operation you guys are running um uh just wanted to to ask like cl clearly the stuff's all made in usa right so um and that, that's a big badge of honor for the uh for uh, any u.s company yeah it is so we design manufacture and build all the fly lines in our Cortland facility we also braid all of the backing whether it's micron backing uh, gel spun backing and the new uh, hollow core spliceable fly line backing. We also braid all of our braided line conventional products um, for both spin fishing for inshore, offshore, saltwater, freshwater, you name it. And then, you know, we do have a, a small industrial business where we'll braid for geez, odds and ends. Um, there's so many different little projects that we have there that our, our braiders um, are incorporated with. So yes, all of that is uh, built in Cortland, New York. And I'd say close to 99% of the raw materials that go into those products are from the United States. So it's pretty neat. We're proud of it. I know that not a lot of companies can say that. Um, it's something that you definitely want to hang your hat on. And Trust me, it's easy to send operations and manufacturings overseas. It's it's very inviting as far as the you know money savings that you can get from it. But it's just there's nothing better than to build things in the United States, especially in Cortland, New York. You know, and employ all these good, hardworking folks um, that a lot of them were born and raised. You know, within a half an hour of that of that plant and facility. So it's it's super cool, and I'm sure it will always stay like that forever. Beside the, the the fact that I mean it, it'd be you know uh, it, it's great to develop these and manufacture these lines you know where head, headquarters is there'd be some some advantages to that as well I'd imagine one being obviously the pride that the workers would have or the people involved everyone at every stage that 
you know, the, this product is going worldwide and made in the town. But I would imagine that also you guys would be quite nimble with um with development and, and things like that as well, which I want to get into development a bit more, but I would imagine that but that would just be one of the advantages to um not going offshore, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, prior to COVID, it it probably wouldn't be a big deal. But ever since COVID, being able to produce things in your own facility, um man, I, I can't tell you how lucky we are that we do everything, you know at Cortland versus relying on facilities overseas, relying on shipping overseas, relying on employees overseas. I, I just could not imagine going through the last year and a half to two years of product development, manufacturing, sales, relying on overseas goods. Um, what, I mean, trust me, it was, it was an absolute nightmare for a year, year and a half, two years at Cortland trying to piece together you know, the raw material aspect of it, um, you know, keeping employees there, just the, the, the ever rolling changes with the COVID people getting sick. It was, it was a grind. And I know, I know everyone in the world went through it. So it, it's nothing, you, you know, you guys and your listeners haven't heard before, but yes, to keep things in Cortland, New York from a product development and manufacturing standpoint, uh, absolute advantage, absolute leg up on the competition. And, now more than ever, it's it's obvious that we need to keep it that way. Mm. I want to talk about something um, as as a bit of an observation, I suppose, at least in Australia. Um, that say, you know, in recent times, it, it's arguable that uh, Cortland fly lines, as an example, have got some of the biggest range of tapers and coatings going at the moment. But um, let's let's go back, say, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, you know, Corlin were like a were, were always there. They're an old company. There's plenty of people in Australia that have had fly lines, you know, a lot longer for a lot, uh, that have that have bought them a lot longer ago than than that time I was just mentioning there. But there was a period there, arguably, where, like I said, like in Australia at least, or standing on the outside looking in, where where Cortland was sort of um, while other companies were sort of doing a lot of fancy marketing and stuff like that. Cortland was just there, but now. It's stepping out of that. Is there is there a, is that something that's um, a fair comment in your experience from say that that time frame, say mid two thousands to you know late two thousands, around about it's, that time? Yeah, it's 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 beyond a fair comment. Um, you know, I started working there roughly ten years ago, um, and the time frame you're talking about, I'm 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 in junior high school at that point. But um, you know, I'm very well versed in the history of Cortland. I mean, Cortland was just an absolute dynamite company in the industry, whether it was just fly fishing, conventional, both, you know, just fishing in general. Cortland was a dynamite company um, yep. across the world, across the states. And yeah, when I showed up about 10 years ago, uh, the place wasn't doing too hot, man, for lack of a better term. And over the time uh, of, of 10 years ago till today, um, we had a, a, a few different management changes, a few different investor groups. Um, I think at one point, what was it? One, two, in about five years, I had gone through three different presidents as a boss and finally landed on our current president, John Wilson, who really helped bring this company to where it is today. Just has a, a, an absolute vision, a good business sense. He's very fishy. He's, he's an honest, fair person, hardworking, just you know, very personable, just 
just an all around well, great person, business aspect. So I think, I think John was definitely, you know, one of the biggest parts of Cortland getting back on track when he came, I think in like 2015 and 16, but no, I mean, going back to your comment about Cortland kind of just being there, you know, we were like, you know, like shit on a shoe. It was like, it was there. You could <laughs> smell it, but you couldn't really find it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's in such better hands right now than it was when I first started there. And it's just, it's come a long ways just from a lot of hard work from people that are still there, from people that are, aren't there. So there's been a lot of people that have retired over the years of Cortland that have been there for shit, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, just a ton of hard work, elbow grease and, and vision, you know what I mean? And then you mix that in with kind of a little bit of a, a an outside look, looking in uh, good business aspect, good business um, trades, um, just good, honest people that are personable. Like I said, John and our VP of sales, Richard Stewart, um, the investor group is just, is great. They just, they trust us. They let us do what we need to do. And, there's just so many good people at that facility from the manufacturing crew to the office, to the sales force. Uh, we're a very well oiled machine now, but yeah, 10 years ago, the place was not doing good. 15 years ago, even worse. And 20 years ago is kind of the downside of where it all started. But like you guys mentioned, I mean, we, we live in an age of marketing right now where if you're not marketing your brand, yourself, your product, you're a nobody, you know? Yeah. And, it's mostly digital where before it was print um, and then it was kind of a mix of both. And if you're just not in front of people on social media and, you know, Google, um, you know, and on TikTok down the list, you name it, you're just, you're not there. So I think, you know, with, with a younger generation of, of, of guys and women working there that understand, you know, who we need to be and who we need to tell people that we are, um, it's, it's blossomed into a really nice company now that's very stable back on its feet. And dude, the stuff that we're working on right now and cooking up is, is just incredible. It's, it's honestly taken a long time to get there, to get that place back on its feet and stable, but we have a very good foundation and base now that we didn't have 10 years ago. So I'm excited for the next 10 years of working there. I plan on working there forever as long as they're going to have me. Um, <laughs> And it's just, there's a lot of room for improvement, you know, as long as we listen to our customers like yourselves and, um, you know, just your average Joe about what could be better, what could be different, um, what to get rid of, what to add. And yep. oh, I, I, I know that who we are is, is honest, hardworking people, and that's what matters the most. And I just, I hope we can continue to progress like we have, you know, in the last 10 years. Hey, Brooks. Um it is so good to hear that. I come from a corporate background myself, and and knowing that, um, uh, you know, knowing that the value in any organisation comes from when all the all the people are aligned and moving in the right direction, in the same direction with a vision, is so important. It gives direction, um, it gives purpose, and it sounds like uh, you've got that, and you certainly sound really proud of it, which is fantastic. I love hearing that. Um, same, the energy transcends. That's for sure. Yeah, that goes yeah. that goes all the way down, doesn't it? You know, and um, you mentioned President John and his uh, uh, and his influence, but he uh, he's uh, he's a keen fisherman. Um, are there many? Uh, well, 
what sort of percentage of the employees at, at Cortland are, are fishermen or even fly fishermen? Um, I'd say three quarters of them are fishermen. I would say that half of them are fly fishermen, and I would say a quarter of them are hardcore fly fishermen. So obviously the guys that you know work in the office and a few guys that work in the plant, um, we're all hardcore fly fishermen and conventional fishermen. I, I honestly can't. That is a large part of our business, but um, you know a lot of us do both. Uh, we fly fish and conventional fish to, to, depending on the season, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, out of, let's say 40 people that work there, 10 of them are just absolute nutbags when it comes to fly fishing. Um, the other 10 love fly fishing and then there's 10 more that, that fish. So I, it's just, you know, if I told you how many times we got in trouble in the office on Monday, getting yelled at by the office manager, talking about fly fishing from our trips on Saturday and Sunday, uh, it, it would absolutely amaze you. It's just <laughs> we, guys that just love to fish and yeah. we get in arguments about how to make things better. What's wrong? What could be better? Um, it's, it's a lot of fun there. Trust me. And I mean, there's days where it's work, right? I mean, you guys go through those days where it's like, you love what you do. You have fun, but there's days where you go home and you're like, shit, that sucked. That was just a lot of work. And, you know, I got in a couple arguments today, but then you come back and you're just kind of rejuvenated, re-energized. It's better than ever. And then it all means, well, you sit down, you go to the drawing table and you come up with something that's, that's better than what you had before. So yeah, a lot of fishing employees there, a lot of just hardcore employees, um, you know, guys that are borderline going to get divorced because they fished way too much. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're lucky to have those guys, but those are, those are the guys that make things move. You know what I mean? You can't have a fishing company without guys that don't fish. Yeah. I think it's, uh, anyone who's been in a room with, with maybe three or more fly fishermen, uh, is going to understand that heat's going to build up pretty quickly. The more passionate, the more heat I can imagine these discussions in relation to the products that you make would be, um, would be it would be quite an interesting conversation to be on the on the a fly on the wall for um you only need to be talking about people that don't have any skin in the game about what fly they like to fish for i don't know tuna say or something like that and you'll get three different opinions and everyone's right (laughs) and everyone's caught the fish for sure no you're you're correct my job is because i worked on the manufacturing side for a handful of years you know i got the boys at the plant they have some pipe dream of a line. I'm like, guys, it just, you just, it, it doesn't work like that. You, you can't, you know what I mean? What comes first, the chicken or the egg type deal when it comes to making products and stuff. So mm-hmm. I try to keep them in a realistic time frame or a uh, mind frame and uh, let them dream up as much as they can. And I tell them what we can and can't do based on, you know, um, basically restrictions and stuff like that as far as machines and whatnot, where they, they you know, not working down there for, for as long as I have, it's it's easy to, to try to dream up the, the world's craziest fly line, perfect fly line, but there are limitations to manufacturing. But that's that's kind of the one thing that we we do at the office is, you know, shoot for the moon and, and see what we can get and then obviously, you know, progress from there. I want to ask you, Brooks, what sort of fishing do you – was a two-part – was a, a conditional question, I should say. Now, what sort of fishing do you do? And if you say Tenkara, this interview's over. No, I, uh, 
I, I do like Euro nymphing, but I actually have a reel on my rod. Is that all right? <laughs> that's fine. That's that's acceptable. <laughs> uh, my I I do love targeting um big wild brown trout. That's my that's my spring thing that I like to do. Uh, I'm obsessed over it. It's all I think about. Um, I have a handful of places that I like to go. I've caught the same fish for five years in a row. I know exactly where it lives, what it does, what it eats. I go back um, every year between April, May, and June and try to find it. Um, sadly, I did not find it this year, so I was kind of devastated. My wife was <laughs> wicked annoyed at me because I would come home all pissed off. I couldn't catch it. Tell me but, about this this beast. Talk about it. Um, Is it got a name? Yeah, I call it road cone because it looks like a giant orange road cone. <laughs> road cone. And what is very, it? A koi? It's very distinct. No, it's not a koi. I, I, it's, I, <laughs> I'm obsessed over it. I don't want to talk about it right now. Um, no, it's just <laughs> it's, it's a very large fish. I, I caught it on a dry fly when it was 19 inches. It's at very, very distinct spots. I caught it the next year on a dry fly, and I realized it was the same fish. And then I caught it the next year on a dry fly, and it has very distinct spots. I realized it's the same fish. Then on year four, I let my best friend catch it and realized it was the same fish. And then last year, I finally caught it after about eight attempts. And I have pictures of all of it. And it, it lives within a couple hundred yard radius of kind of the same area on a river. And um, it obviously migrates during thermal refuge, during the spawn, during the winter, during the spring. But as far as when I catch it, usually it's 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 within the same you know two three hundred uh, yard radius. So it is pretty neat. I did not find it this year. I know it exists because I hooked it twice. I just broke the fucking hook off, and I was very disappointed. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's that's my thing. I just I love targeting big wild brown trout. Um, like I said, I have a handful of rivers that I do that on. Once that kind of dissipates, usually by July um, in upstate New York, a lot of our free stones. Um, they're, they're too hot to ethically catch and release trout, so we leave them alone. And, and this year and last year, honestly, about third week in June, they got too hot. So after that, um, it, it gets very busy at work in late June, um, wrapping up the catalog, the price guide, the new products. And I kind of have to focus on work for a little bit. And I do like playing golf from time to time. But over the summertime, I, I just try to make it to the ocean to go offshore fishing for tuna i mean i i love wild trout fishing but and tarpon fishing in the keys i've done that a few times i've gotten a handful of big tarpon i mean really big tarpon and and that is absolutely insane to feed a, a, a giant 100 pound tarpon on a fly but there is just something about tuna fishing and the new england coastline that i'm just obsessed with and i don't know what it is i just tuna and 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 the coast and the commercial fishing, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to catch them on a fly. I probably would never land one because they're way too big, but I just, I just, ha I have an obsession with tuna. I don't know what it is, but it's just, that's the way it is. Is this the, uh, the Northern, oh, sorry, the Atlantic blue fin? Yeah, that's, that's what my obsession is. It's just, yeah. It is is the bluefin tuna because you can catch them in all shapes and sizes you can catch 30 pounders up to a thousand pounders but um i i wouldn't balk at catching a yellow fin or a big eye or something on the fly rod you know mid shore you know 40 50 miles out or, or way offshore in the canyons all you know 90 100 miles out but the bluefin fishery 
you know, around Cape Cod and Massachusetts. It's just, man, it's special. Like you, you don't have to go that far off to, to see those fish blowing up on bait. Um, you're talking two, three hour fights on these giant reels. It's just, it's pretty cool. And, and this year there's a lot of smaller fish around and I've had a handful of people call me looking for lines for, for tuna. They're going out, target them on the fly rod. And I, I would love to do that. I just know I'm not strong enough to, to land one on a fly rod, to be honest with you. They're just, those things are so powerful. So I How just, big are they? uh, I mean, the ones you want to target on a fly rod, it's pretty obvious when the big ones are around, like the, yeah. we call them giants. And yeah. When the rec size fish around, we call them recreational fish. They're you know usually between I don't know twenty five and, and, and eighty pounds, um, and they're pretty obvious. They usually blow up on bait out of the water. You can see them, and yeah. it's an, you know you're like, all right, these fish are small enough to throw a fly in there. Um, I mean, some of these fish are so big, you you physically do not want to throw a fly in there. You'll never land it. You'll probably end up killing it because you fight it too long, and it's and it's not that much fun. So yeah you know, 30 to 70 pounder, that's, that's your target size on the fly. Now guys might argue with me, but they're way stronger than I am. And, and that's cool. Yeah, oh, I get it. The circles under the boat are enough to just drive me insane. Just thinking about it. Like at the 30 pound, we call them, what do we, we call them comp size fish over here. Like uh, around that 30 pound, you know, um, a fish that you can get in quickly during a comp, a tuna comp, and then um, get it back in the water and get another one. The ones that do the massive circles under the boat, I'd love to. I, yeah, uh, these day and age, I'll drive away from big tuna for that reason. <laughs> it's a, not fun. I agree. I totally agree. How close is um is Cortland to to the salt? Like, I mean, it sounds like you got brown trout fishery in your town, but like you know, it doesn't sound like you can drive. You have to drive too far to hit the salt either. Yeah, our I mean, like the good trout fishing streams, they're they're probably 40, 45 minutes to an hour from Cortland. Um, you know, the really good ones, and then we have a great fishery that's little over an hour called the uh delaware system the upper delaware which is um one of the most iconic uh prolific dry fly uh streams pretty much in the world i know it's probably number one on the east coast but i'd i'm putting this thing top 10 top 20 in the world as far as like fisheries it's just the bug life is just off the charts it's uh just the east branch just pump the brakes while we're looking. I'm still on the map. Are you are you on a Great Lakes drainage or are you going towards? The no, this this is a wild trout fishery. It's a tailwater fishery. Yeah. Um, there's two giant uh, dams and both reservoirs and other reservoirs in that Catskill Mountain region. Mm -hmm. That is the New York City drinking water. So oh, wow. that that's what kind of starts all of it as a trout stream. But they're both bottom release, so. They're ice cold all year round, and the, the the business it generates is insane. The trout fishing is insane. The bug life is off the charts. I mean, some of the hardest dry fly fish you'll ever find to catch. Um, it's just it's to have that place an hour from Cortland is is God. It's it's such a present, man. It's it's insane. So yeah, I mean, our trout fishing is is fairly close by. Like I said, you know, between forty minutes yep. to an hour. But the salt you're looking at maybe three and a half to get to salt water more like four four and a half to get to good salt water yeah. um you know and if you really want to get to like cape cod's probably five hours away new jersey's four four and a half um right we're pretty spoiled you know and then we have we have a whole lake run fishery of great we call it the great lakes run um the great lakes that we have 
uh, like we're, we bought up to Lake Ontario, upstate New York does. And I mean, that thing's an ocean in itself. You're talking, uh, coho salmon, king salmon, steelhead, lake run rainbows, lake run browns, um, the occasional landlocked salmon, um, the Great Lakes fisheries. New York's pretty cool, man. And if you're a big bow hunter like I am and you like to kill shit, it just, there's no reason to leave here. Uh-huh. Uh-oh, ra- rabbit hole warning. If we start talking about bow hunting, we're going to totally forget about talking about uh, fly lines. and. We're black belt in tangents, Brooks, on this podcast. Yeah. And we've got to, we really got to sort of, uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool to hear, mate. That's for sure. But like, I, I want to, uh, sorry, now that we've sort of, uh, I've broken that up and I didn't do that on purpose, but I had to stop the bow hunting thing because we'll go down that rabbit hole for sure. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk get get more in about in regards talk more about the fly lines. Is it is it fair enough to say that the fly lines are the flagship of Cortland Line Company? One hundred percent. Okay. Um, how how like you did talk about like the the, the staff within the company are, are fly fishermen or fishermen uh, fisher people um, and have a lot of input into the into the company and uh, will have their say pretty freely by the sounds of it, which is great. How influenced is the fly line designed by the staff? Uh, it is the number one driver of what we make, how we make it, and when we make it. And a lot has to do with, you know, our sales force. I mean, because that's, that's really who's in touch with all the customers, you know what I mean? Um, like, I talk to Simon all the time, our international sales director. I talk to all of our sales reps around the country. I basically, you know, gather Intel, gather product ideas and, and try to formalize those ideas year in and year out. Right. And Mm. what, what ideas align and what don't and, you know, markets that we're missing that we need to be in right away markets that, you know, maybe they can wait a year or two. Um, it's 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 very tricky you know like in a, in a perfect world we could come out with a thousand new things in one year and take care of everyone but that's not realistic for a manufacturing company for for product management and that's that's probably one of my hardest jobs is is product management right what's mm. moving what's not moving what could be doing better if something were to help that product whether it's marketing whether it's a a a, a sales force um you know what it's 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 kind of a constant rolling change as far as that but yeah as far as what drives the 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 design it's by far our sales force which most you know there's a handful of us that are inside sales reps at Cortland like myself um you know and just in in our customer service really like we got probably two or three guys in customer service that take the brunt of the phone calls and emails on a daily basis and when you listen to the same questions, comments, concerns over a year, two or three, you start to kind of align this picture that's like, hey, maybe we need this. You know what I mean? And those guys will speak up and and, and that's what we want. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a giant team effort. And if you don't have open ears and open mind, uh, you're never going to progress. Mm. What, what is a, a common thing that people will, will ring up Cortland to suggest? Is, it, is, it, is there something central? It's usually something we don't have. Yeah, right. right That's yep. it's it's always something we don't have, and 
Um, you know, luckily at Cortland, it's it's rarely something that we have issues with. Thankfully, we have we have very good quality control and and the products. You know, it's just it's it's been flawless for the last you know six seven years that I've been in the position that I'm at. Um, you know, so we don't have to deal with any of that, thank God. But mm. uh, it's usually you know products we don't have in markets that we're not in, and that's that's to be expected when you consider how Cortland is regrowing, if that makes sense. Yep. You know yep. what I mean? Um, if, if we were just kind of a small company doing a couple things here and there, I, I would never hear that. But, you know, when we have a very aggressive, fantastic sales force and we align ourselves with great customers all over the country, those guys are going to tell us like, hey, listen, we don't have this and we need it. And um, that's when we, we kind of start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So it's usually something we don't have. Yeah. 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 So could we, um, could you, well, could you walk us through the, um, the new product development process? Like, you know, say, um, say somebody came to you with a, <clears throat> with a new and exciting fishery um, or, or concept, like right from the start, how would what what does the design process look like so usually um because i, I so i manage the fly line department as well obviously because i work down there but also because i'm in a a sales and product development position at Cortland. so um you know usually i have a guy a sales um a salesman or a fellow employee really yeah. pitch me an idea based off a customer's idea or based off a fishery um kind of saying like, hey, here's what's going on, here's what we need to do, and here's how I think we could do it. And usually what I'll do is I'll give them a concept of maybe something we already have, right? They'll, they'll dream up a, a taper and a weight profile and a color and a core and a jacket material stiffness, and I'll say, hey, here's what I have that's as close as what you're describing. What do you think? And they'll say, yeah, this looks good. Let me let me get a sample of that. Let me try this. Yep. And that that kind of knocks out 50% of the work, right? And then they'll come back to me and say, this worked good, or this worked great, or this did not work. Here's what we need to tweak. Here's what we need to add. And that's sure. kind of usually how I take the approach. And that tends to speed up the process rather than starting from square one. As you guys had mentioned before, we have a ton of, a ton of products, ton of tapers, ton of coatings, a uh, ton of different cores, ton of different size lines. So I'm confident I can find something that's somewhat close to their description. And, you know, usually I try to use that as a talking point and then progress from there. And usually that speeds up the process pretty well. And, and we end up coming out with a dynamite product. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And what about, um, you know, deciding where it fits into the, you know, existing ranges and, and things like uh, commercial realities like packaging and uh, MOQs? What, what are you looking at there for a concept? Yeah, that's, that's pretty tricky. I mean, obviously, you know, it could be the greatest line for a certain fishery, but if I told you you were only going to sell 15 lines a year, does that make sense to make? And yeah. no, it doesn't, you know? So you, you kind of have to, you really have to weigh your options as far as, does this make sense for 
one to think about two to ten spend time on you know what i mean to to really dream up this idea for this great line for this certain fishery and you know three like what's the projections of how many that you would sell and it's it's a constant battle um it's something i think about all the time it's something that i battle with with salesmen because you know it's a salesman and 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 they and they should you know think this way and talk this way is they want something for 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 their territory and and they should that's what a salesman should do so it's something that i have to just constantly weigh my options of is this worth our time you know what is the what is the minimum order quantities like you mentioned of uh you know are are, are we going to set the world on fire with this product is it worth stocking uh does it really need uh two tapers with three colors and this that and the other thing so those are all options that you know are on the table that i have to look at and sometimes the decisions are really hard as, as far as when we can get to it when we can come out with it um is it in this year's catalog is it in next year's catalog you know stuff like that and it can you know it can get pretty daunting over time i mean like i said before as we continue to expand the more and more of those questions and um discussions come up so can i ask what is is there like a moq say somebody had like a a really shit hot idea in their opinion said listen you know i i want and it, and it's quite specific they take the the design work out of it so to speak um they said you know i want i want this i need it in a 10 weight and like is there a minimum order like do you need like 30 50 100 like what what do you guys work off there? In, so, in is, sure, I got you. So, would this be a product that they would put under their own brand, or would this be a product that Cortland would come out with under their design? Yeah, well, that's that's a very good question. Well, let, let's call it for a, an easy one. Just call it an OEM, like you know, say uh, say we had the the intermediate line, intermediate line, you know, the ultimate Aussie tuna line or something <laughs> like that. <Yeah. laughs> and Valti's um, face right in the yeah. middle of it. You know? Yeah, yeah, like a, we had a we had a, a paper or or, or uh, coating or, or core, and we'll get to those later. But is is there like a what what is an MOQ just just for shits and gigs? It it'll it'll vary depending on um, the color, how many colors, yeah. um, you know, and, and it'll vary depending on uh, time of year based on machine capacity. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, you know. Our, our single color machines versus two color machines versus three color machines. There's times when it, it's kind of like an up and down roller coaster with those when it comes to production availability. Yeah. So I, I can't put one number to it, but it ver it really depends on um, coatings, colors, machine capacity, time frame, um, really, really items like those. And it's, it's it's nothing's ever set in stone when when it comes to OEM like that. Um, yeah. If 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 companies are patient and they're willing to work with us on machine time availability, uh, you know things things can be easier. A lot of times, guys have an idea and companies have an idea, and there's obviously a seasonality curve to when they want to release their product and. It just the machine time doesn't align with 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 what they need and sometimes we get to it the year after sometimes they move on sometimes we meet in the middle um as far as 
you know, colors, coatings and, and stuff like that. So it, it really all veil it really all varies, um, in, in terms of that for, for MOQs for OEM stuff. Brooks, while we're on the subject of, um, of design still, I've got a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a question. I'm, I'm a, uh, this comes from a point of, um, of, of, of a side gig I've got as I've had for a while as, as a CCI and uh, part of part of some of my tuition is is matching people up with with lines that suit, and it might be you know what, what suits their fishing scenario on top of what suits the the gear that they've already got. Um, yeah, the the line is a pretty pivotal part in that, and I and I've got a little bit of a question in regards to um, yeah gra um, grain weights and AFTMA or A A double FTA. Um, you know, relevance, I guess you could say in this day and age, you know, um, let me ask you before I get into my specific question, what is the uh, relevance in regards to those, those, um, what are they governing bodies? No, they're probably not even a governing body, like a standard, I guess you say this in this day and age. Uh, it's a shit show. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep. Yeah. I thought it would be, and which is going to lead me on to what I want to ask next, I guess. All right. But, um, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let, let, I mean that that kind of sums it up because my next question is in regards to that. So, I mean, oh, every well, almost every um, fly line, I guess you could say, on the box is going to come out, let's say, as an as an eight weight line. But even with um, like with your brand, say, you know, like I mean, an eight weight eight weight can range from say, you know, I don't know exactly, but arguably from two ten grains to three twenty grains. Sure. You know, you know, but um, but I mean, like a three twenty grain could be. You know, classed as a uh, a ten weight in in some some lines or some even even in your range, you know. Correct. So yep. I I wonder. I'm not sure even how to ask this question, but I guess I'd like to I like to speak to my students and say, look, you need to take the the name on the box out of it, like an eight weight. Don't look at that. Look at look at the grains. Look at the head design. Un understand that and understand how it applies to you. And I wonder if um if if marketing is going to head towards calling lines like a 300 grain line as opposed to an eight weight line um in addition to you know taper diagrams so nothing will fix itself until rod companies put a grain window on the rod does that yeah. make sense i, sure I understand no, but, nothing will fix itself so yeah. until a rod this this is my personal opinion so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from, from personal experience as a line designer, right? There's, there's standards for fly line weights at 30 feet, right? Yep. But there's no standard for rod flexes, right? So a rod manufacturer, they'll take an eight weight and they'll put a five on it. And Joe Schmo out there will say, wow, this is the fastest five weight I've ever felt. It's got to be the greatest thing in the world. Well, actually, it's just an eight weight, and you're not going to find one goddamn line to throw on it that's going to be worth a shit because you probably suck at casting to begin with. And two, you probably need an eight or a nine weight to flex it, but you wouldn't know that, you know, unless you were privy to rod flexes and, and grains, which which most customers aren't, and they shouldn't be. You know what I mean? It's grains and rod flexes. There's a, there's so much to learn and understand in fly fishing it's it's it there's a lot going on right it's like golf it's like bow hunting it's like anything else out there that is is complex so hmm. my my personal opinion is until we kind of get a grain window on the side of a rod that says this rod's called the five weight it flexes a 
140 to 150 grain line, then it's going to be confusing for customers to line up their new rod with a new line. And uh, sorry, does that make on. sense? No, it does. No. Please, please continue. Sorry, you're on. Um, and before I get myself in trouble, that's all I got with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, um, I guess, I guess it's the label, the the um, the the label weight. You know, I sure. guess it's um, you know, because arguably the weight is the fly line. You know, so I mean. If we're gonna if we're gonna come into it in in a rudimentary fashion and 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 not understanding the industry jargon, say you know, you would you would you would look at that as in like um, an eight weight referring to the line. You know, I, I hear what you're saying about putting the onus onto the onto the rod manufacturers. It kind of is, I suppose. But it's I mean, but still, let's say, I mean, like look at Thomas and Thomas with their, their Exocet range and stuff like that. And like they they're talking about grain weights on there, and that's that's pretty handy. But yeah. Yeah, for me, like I mean, I, I look at that and I think to myself, well, what what scenario is that line rate is that rod rated to to suit that grain weight? I mean, if I'm casting like a twelve inch game changer out of a float tube at a at a snag at the side of the river at twenty feet away, am I going to load that rod up a, a three hundred grain rod with a three hundred grain line? I know that head design is going to come into that as well, but um, but still, am I, let's say let's say I've got a a 20 foot head you know like and i've got all those grains out of oh, the rod sure, tip sure. I, yeah. I i hear you 100 and that's the only thing that kind of debunks my theory as far as fixing everything right it's it's distance right so mm. say that rod has a grain window on it say your fly line has a grain window on it but your fly line is the the, the head and the taper is way longer than 30 feet which is the standard so you start casting 40, 45, 50, 55 feet. Your line no longer weighs 210 grains like it does at 30 feet. Mm. You're talking 250, 260, 280, 300, 330 as you progress more head out of the rod. So, no, you're absolutely correct. Like, if that rod has a grain window on it, it's what does that rod perform well in terms of distance at with that grain fly line on it? Do you follow mm. me? I, I do absolutely so you know that's that's the only thing it's like it, that 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 kind of doesn't jive with the whole grain window theory of the fly line and and the fly rod it's just you know the longer the taper the more rod the more line you're going to have out of the rod tip the more grains you're going to be putting into the air the more the rod is going to flex because it's not rated for that amount of grain weight mm. and, and vice versa sure Hey Brooks, while we've we've got a while we're exactly on that point, um, I'm just looking at your website, and um, when I go to say line size, it says grain weight and then head length. Where you guys quote, quote the grain weight is that at thirty foot or is that the grain weight for the head length? Uh, unless the line is less, unless the head is less than thirty feet, it's at thirty feet. Okay, gotcha. Right, yeah, cool. Yeah, so that makes it a, a very simple for people to. To understand and so okay so then what's the uh, compact intermediate that's a 25 24 foot head or something isn't it i think is it 26 i think 26 okay um so you're saying then like part like that that grain weight is made up with part of the rear taper as well like that the handling section say? it does not it does not include the handling section right but it's uh but you were saying there that um your grain weights are measured if the if the if the head is shorter than 30 feet it's it's the 30 feet did i get that right so like a yeah. 20 26 foot line 
you're still measuring the first 30 feet being in the grain weight, yeah? Uh, a 26-foot head, like the compact intermediate, we weigh 26 feet. We don't include the handling section on the weight. Right, uh -huh. okay. Yeah, I, I just needed to clarify. That got a little bit confusing for me with that because um, that, that puts a whole new spin on things, really, with that with that line, say, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I guess, like, um, in a perfect world, you know, like, uh, um, we'd be looking at a, a rod with the grain weight or a recommended grain weight on it and a, and a line. But but in addition to that, you'd be working, like, like what they, sorry, I'll get it straight. <laughs> like when you say grain weight is measured for the first 30 feet, the the grain envelope for the for the matching gear is set for an eighty foot cast, you know. Really, sure. I guess I guess you could say you know like a, a um a, a, you know eighty foots are probably well, for where for an average cast. But then it's not for people with, with with trout and stream craft and things like that. But for guys fishing stripers, you know, like you're you're chucking it out 100, 120 feet. You know, like it, it's just such a squirrely thing. And I, I I can see how it's quite. It's it's hard to sort of market to everyone with with an eight weight line written on the side of the box for that reason, I guess. Correct, you are yeah. correct. So it's just a matter of um, people. I guess it's uh, this is what I try and tell my students. You you really need to have an understanding of taper design um, and and grain weights and the understanding of your rod and what you want to do. And there's really no other short way around that that formula. You know, yeah, no, there there isn't. And and you look at like some of these guys that do you know, distance casting, extreme distance casting, right? Even if they take a five weight, right? They're going to pick a line with the longest head length on it, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's say it's 80 feet, like you said. A lot of these guys will choose a line that's probably a four weight instead of a five weight so yeah, that they, yeah. when they, when they get 80 feet of line out, it's not overloading their rod compared to what a five weight 80 foot head would be. Follow mm -hmm. me? So, yep. you know, and, and that's, you're talking about the cream of the crop guys that get grain weight, you know, the, the nerds out there for lack of a better term. And yeah. I just want to make sure that as an industry, we're taking care of the masses. You know what yep. I mean? I, I, I think that we should do a better job as line companies at rod companies as an industry to help beginners, entry level, intermediate level anglers have a good experience with a combination of a fly rod and a fly line. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the people out there, they're like, man, my rod sucks or my casting sucks, or maybe it's my line. And it's just like, you know what? It's the combination of all three really, but really it's probably your equipment. They're just, they're not jiving together. They're like, what do I got to do? I got a $900 fly rod and a hundred dollar fly line and I can't cast. And you look at their cast and you're like, you know what? Your cast isn't really that bad. Then you grab the rod from them and just the line and the rod just don't jive because the rod's too stiff and the line's too light um, and so on and so on. So I just, I think, again, this is personally, this is not Cortland. I just think we're doing a disservice to the industry by not helping anglers getting into the sport, having a good experience, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's where it all that's where it all starts. But that's where the sorry, Vols. I was just going to say but that's just the tail end of that. That's where the that's where the nerds created, you know. And um, you know, most I'm, I'm guessing all three of us would be under that category of of nerds in, as far as understanding the tapers and the and the grains we choose for the rod and the type of fishing that we do. But you don't you don't come into the sport like that. You come into yeah. the sport wanting to catch fish. 
you come into the Correct. sport not wanting to get frustrated and um and and it's from small successes that you build on that need for more information and becoming that inverted commas nerd you know that's um and it's uh and it's a natural progression it's not something that people should be afraid of it's just a it's just with any like any sport you know you're, you're going to fine tune and um and if you understand that sort of stuff that's the the good thing about Cortland, I suppose, and, the, and that catalog in particular, is that all that information is there for you to be able to make that equation yeah. uh, uh, quite easily, you know. And there's such a massive range. You guys have got a huge range, you know, as uh, of um of options there, but still quite simplified at the same time, you know. Um, th- that must be a pretty uh, hard part in regards to that, which we've kind of covered in regards to the development and like Valtteri's talking with MOQs, and you were saying in regards to uh, niche sort of areas of of fly fishing um but um but i mean some of those features that you guys have got on in addition to those tapers which some of them are similar say like um you know your musky your musky new musky lines that have come out you know like uh you know like you you'll find you'll find like the compact float might be a very similar taper to that but it's uh, different features as far as temperature versatility and all that sort of carry on um is that where you, where you sort of find a lot of um crossovers between fishing situ- situations yeah, there's definitely a lot of crossovers. I mean, you know, as well, you guys know as well as I do, I mean, being nerds, right? We're talking about a, on a nerd status here when it comes to fly fishing. Um, we could probably get away with, and most good anglers could get away with, a handful of things in terms of tapers, sink rates, and core strengths. And, um, you know, as far as stiffness and suppleness, for the jacket material, depending on what environment you're fishing in, right? But unfortunately, the way people consume, um, the way people consume products and, and information of the products, you really have to spell it out for them and design a lot of different stuff. And yes, some things could be pretty similar to others. There could be slight differences, but those slight differences can make a huge difference um, in performance uh, perception of that product. So it just it is what it is when it comes to building fly lines for each individual little niche market. Um, there could be a slight difference. You know what I mean? Like you could, you might have the same coating, the same taper, and the same core, but there's a fishery where this guy's like, listen you know and and multiple anglers are like you cannot have a line that's bright colored the fish will see the line flash you know up against the backdrop versus the other market where same coating same same taper same core where guys are like listen you got to be able to see this thing at a distance you need a bright line so there's cases like that where you know 90 percent of the line is the same but the color is different and that makes a huge difference between two total different fisheries that those anglers, they don't even know anything about the other guy's fishery, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was le- leaning at there, yeah. You, you did sort of mention it earlier in regards to the design where you said presenting the closest available line that you guys already have to people with new design concepts takes a lot of the work out. It really but- does, and I think a lot of times, uh, you know, people have a, a dream of, of a, what a line should be. And they, they don't really study what, you know, it's kind of already on the market. And that's why I always try to start there. Not, not saying that, Hey, this, this is what you need. I know everything it's let's start here and 
kind of base our starting point off of something that already exists. But yeah, you're you're correct and and pretty much spot on. Brooks, I'd like to um, take the time to sort of go through some of the features outlined on um, on the catalog a bit more. I mean, the information's there. It's it's quite easy to understand. But uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about some of those and probably maybe some of the history behind them, uh, if if you don't mind. Yeah, right on. Um, uh, I guess um, I guess at the top, which is probably not a real um, uncommon feature, I suppose is, is and one thing I wanted to ask about was the welded loops, the introduction of those. Um, I mean, I myself have also been around where we we've been putting our own loops on on lines for a long time, and um, I actually didn't have that big a problem in coming into welded loops and trusting them because I understand that loop to loop connection, you know, is not really reliant on the how well the line is fused to itself. You know, without it being, you could almost put a bend in a line and and put that loop to loop connection on, and cat's port if it's snug, it will it'll hit. But um, how was that introduction for you guys from Corlin? uh welded loops man those those were definitely around you know when i started you know 10 11 years ago i know that uh you know loops god i don't know probably were really starting to become really popular 20 25 years ago mm -hmm. obviously nerd level fly fishermen have been building their own fly line loops and will continue to build their own fly line loops mm -hmm. uh personally i use the crap out of welded loops when it comes to, you know, two-handed fishing where I'm attaching sink tips to um, to lines. You obviously need welded loops for that case. Um, I I love um, building my own welded loops or just all bright connections, nail knots. I I just I've learned to to do that. Uh, I use a ton of welded loops when it comes to trout fishing where I'm changing out tapered leaders constantly um welded loops uh they can be tricky depending on the the coating and the core um some are easier than others some are really difficult um some we don't even put welded loops on and and it's not a, a price level product type deal it's just hey uh like our gt tuna for instance like we know you guys are going to go out there and catch the biggest most badass fish on the planet uh, let's not leave a factory welded loop up for discussion and slap, you know, a, a, a welded factory loop on there when you can put something that's bulletproof on there that takes, sure, a little bit of time to do, 5, 10, 15 minutes, but the thing is absolutely bulletproof. You know it's not coming apart. It, it takes the guesswork and um, that kind of stuff out of the equation, and you can go put a line like that to the test against you know something that's way bigger than you should honestly be throwing at but um <laughs> welded loops man i mean they're they're tricky they serve a purpose um in in some scenarios more than others um i love them in some scenarios i hate them in other scenarios i have no problem making my own you know not connection for the butt section of my tapered leader if, if I get in a pinch and have to do it. So um, they are user-friendly and they definitely um, they definitely help, like I said, your entry-level beginner, intermediate-level angler uh, continue to have an enjoyable time on the water. Mm. I, I don't personally have a problem. I, 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 uh, if, if something fails, I'll you know, just put the, um, the braided monofilament on, you know, uh, make, it, make sure. a loop that way, which has probably been the most common way 
you know, for, for me in the early days, I suppose none of the none of the fly lines had had loops on them back then. So it's uh, I, it's just interesting because I hear a lot of um, I hear a lot of uh, uh, resistance to it from some of the older crew. You know, I don't trust them. I don't do that. Blah blah. But you guys um, don't seem to sort of have that problem. But you're you're talking about them being there for a for a purpose and and being realistic in regards to them, right? Yeah, it just I, I get the older crew out there. I mean, I'm kind of old myself. I am half bald at this point, so I'm kind of borderline <laughs> using loops. But um, I, I understand where they're coming from. I, I do like that direct connection from a fly line right to that butt section of a tapered leader. But some of these welded loops that we're coming out with now um, paired well with the right diameter and right stiffness of a butt section of a tapered leader. You're not losing anything. Um, the welded loops are, are so much stronger now than they were years ago. I just, if I'm using a welded loop, like I, I know I trust that damn thing to, to land what I need to land. So um, we're not going to put a loop on something that it, it has potential to fail if you, if you catch something too large. You know what I mean? And like I said, there's scenarios out there like the GT Tuna, for example. It's just like we know there's, there's, chances of catching something 150 200 pounds with that style of line um you know why why even put a welded loop on there when the majority of anglers that are going to go target those fish which are mostly the hardcore type guys and women out there they're going to do their own welded loop anyways mm. you know what i mean you're you're guys that actually are going to spend money take the time take the time to tie flies to go target a tuna or fly to the Indian ocean or the, you know, Alphonse Island to catch a GT or Christmas Island to catch a GT. Like they're going to, they're going to make their own loops. You know what I mean? And that's just the way it yeah. is. And, 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 and I, and we get that. So, um, every scenario is different. Mm. Fair enough. Hey, hey Brooks, um, when I look through some of the, uh, some of the features of, of the lines, I, I see, uh, I see a, um, an icon called the shooting coating. Um, which is uh, apparently reduces friction. Um, can you run us through that, uh, that, that feature, please? Yeah, so the ST, the shooting taper, um, the shooting coating, sorry that you, that you mentioned, it's, lack of a better term, it's basically a, a silicone lubricant that we put in the mix of the plastisol uh, prior to curing the product. And without that, your line will become kind of tacky and sticky over time. But the silicone lubricant uh, keeps it remaining slick for pretty much the, the, the life of the fly line. Wow. Wow. That's pretty good. Uh, and that probably leads into the next thing I, I've always wanted to ask. Um, uh, does slickness and, and durability go, go hand in hand? Like does a, does a slicker fly line last longer because it's you know, on a, on a micro level, I guess it's having less sort of collisions and trauma with, um, with guides and, and, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a good question. And, and it really depends on the line being used as far as slickness and, and durability. Um, as you know, as well as I do, there's certain fly lines that, you know, there's a lot of false casting involved. There's certain fly lines where there's not as much false casting involved, but there's more shootability involved. Um, it, it really depends on the line, not necessarily, um, nothing as far as the abrasion testers that we run, um, you know, when lines are lubricated it, as far as like longevity and durability, 
Um, I, I'll just say that they're, they're much slicker for, for their lifespan. And that's, you know, that's the biggest thing with, with lubricated fly lines nowadays. Brooks, one thing I see come up in regards to more, um, the blurbs about describing the lines is the temperature versatility. Uh, sure. let me just see if I got that, if I got that right, I'm just scroll down. I'm, I've got the catalog up in front of me. Um, and I should have been more prepared, but is that right? Is that how it's, how it's worded? Temperature, temperature versatile coating, is it? Yeah, so uh, depending on what the line is and what it's meant and intended for, like our tropic lines, we rate them for warm slash tropic conditions, right? Which is yep. kind of a combination of air and water temperatures. Can you use the line in warm water and warm air temperatures? Absolutely. Do they perform better in, in tropic conditions? Absolutely. Will they get a little stiff and a little coily in cold conditions? Yeah, they will. Um, and vice versa with, you know, more supple lines. They're really geared for cold and warm temperatures. Can I use it in tropic heat? Yeah, but it probably won't last long because it'll eventually get pretty damn soft and become kind of sticky and tacky through the guides. So there's, there's a, a method to the madness in terms of the lines we design and what they're rated for and the temperatures they need to be used in. Um, like I kind of said before, you could have the same core, the same taper, the same color, but the jacket material really dictates where that line can be used. Mm. Uh, you can use one in a trout scenario in 30, 40, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and you put a tropic jacket on the other line and it can be used in 70, 80, and 90 degree Fahrenheit much easier, if that makes sense. It does make sense, but there's. Uh, I'm looking at what I was, what I was had in my mind a second ago, and we got because I use the compact intermediate a lot. That's, sure. that's one of my favorite lines of that range, um, and and I do tell other people about it a lot because of the range of the, the temperature. I mean, what people are throwing, obviously, but it's it says on the catalog is rated for cold, warm, and tropical. I haven't seen too many other lines that can have that bigger range in in temperature temperature versatility. Yeah, so we found that line. Uh, that was one of the original uh, striped bass lines we used to use up here on the East Coast. And, you know, early spring and April and late fall and November, I mean, you're talking 40 degree Fahrenheit. Uh, sometimes it depends on when the wind's blowing, but even colder than that. Um, you know, 40, 45 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, 50 degrees Fahrenheit targeting you know, striped bass, bluefish, uh, smallmouth bass. And then we would take that line, same line, in the middle of the summer um, and target those same species, false albacore. Um, you know, we would send that line down to Florida for, you know, deep water permit. Um, really, most saltwater species that are traveling a little bit deeper. But we found that with the monofilament core, which is normally a little stiffer than a braid core, um, and and kind of a moderate jacket between something not too supple and not too stiff that it's really the best of both worlds uh as far as that overall line jacket now do you have to stretch that line in the cold to get it to perform properly 100 percent um will it coil a little bit when it's super cold yes but not as bad as a true tropic line mm. but what's nice about it is with a little line management in those really cold conditions it it's flawless and it holds up against uh, your really extreme heat and super hot boat decks. So uh, the the window of 
temperature, both air and water for that line is very unique. Um, I think we just kind of ran into that one. You know what I mean? It was somewhat unattended, but the combination of the core, the jacket material, and when we tested that line as far as its usage, both in fresh and salt water, uh, it, it was it was a home run. Um, it was not intended to be that, but uh, sometimes that's how good things happen. Mm, mm. That's a great line. It's, uh, yeah, I've got it on, on nearly every weight that I fish, actually. I'm trying to think of it. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, it's, it's ironic that you build up that um, that you brought up that scenario about the, the cold water. I, uh, I've got some, um, still got two of them here actually. Do you remember a line called the Cortland Little Tunny? It was 125 foot long. Oh yeah, the clear camo, 125 feet long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was great during winter um, in our local waters, which yeah you know, we're probably getting down to. I, I don't know what the Fahrenheit is, but. Um, in southeast Queensland here, maybe 16, 17 degrees, maybe, Chris. Does that sound right, um, Celsius? Uh, I'll just water? check I'll just check the uh, computer for um, – <laughs> <a, a, a laughs> but, but, yeah, those those lines were, um, you know, they were great in winter. And, you know, during during summer, they, um, they became a little bit, you know, harder to cast. 60, 60 yeah. Fahrenheit, 16 degrees Celsius, which is really cold for our water around here. Yeah. I don't think it gets much below 18, actually, which yeah. is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. But, yeah, they, um, they were great lines. Um, but, yeah, they, uh, oh, there was that other one you guys had, too. Do you remember the XRLs, Exposed Running Line series? Oh, yeah. I, I have the last five that were ever at the plant in my house right now. And oh, I'll really? Those way. Yeah, so um, the XRL, it stood for Exposed Running Line. And yeah. I, I believe I might just be making that up. Um, no, no, you're right. You're right. But yeah, yeah. those things were absolute cannons of a fly line. Um, only issue is pretty damn coarse stripping it across your fingertips. If you didn't have stripping, uh, like finger condoms, stripping gloves on, uh, yeah. your hands were absolutely shot, especially in saltwater. I had fished one in a striped bass tournament one year in Massachusetts, and we fished near. Uh, a pretty decent sized bridge that had a lot of pillars going into the ground. So there was a lot of barnacles on it, um, shells and the, in the incoming tide, outgoing tide, incoming tide. We had sat on this one bridge, I think through two or three side tide cycles. I had stripped that XRL over my fingertips for like 12 hours. When I woke up the next day, I could not open my hands up because they were so cut up from, uh, shells and barnacles that I was like, all right, maybe this is why we don't make this line anymore. But uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. in a freshwater scenario and maybe away from shore where you're not dealing with any of that uh, real sharp kind of wash uh, is for salt water, you, you won't find a line that shoots farther, that casts easier. Yeah. Um, that thing was pretty special. And maybe I'll see if we can take another poke at it. But bless your soul if you're gonna fish that thing in in uh in the wash in salt water because it's it's rough man you just you just got to have uh finger gloves that's that's really all you need and then it's good you're good to go sure sure well it's pertinent that you bring that up because one thing i was going to talk about next was cause um i noticed the majority of your um your salt water lines at least uh offered on a, a monofilament core um so I've got a, a couple of questions here. Is it um, is that your core of, of preference? Like, do you use the same core uh, for for most of your lines, but in different breaking strengths? Or 
Yeah, it de- it depends. I mean, most of the tropic lines have a have a monocore. Uh, just mono is uh, a, a little bit stiffer. I mean, you can get soft mono, but it's a little bit stiffer and kind of reacts to its environment. Um, yeah. But usually, you know, the hotter the conditions, monocore is is suitable for that. Um, obviously, the size and the brake strength of monocore will will vary depending on uh, line size. But we yep. do make a couple lines with the braided nylon core for tropic conditions. We just add a stiffening agent in the braided nylon core to get yep. it to maintain its stiffness equal to what a monofilament core would be in that same environment. Uh, okay. So am I right in saying most of the stiffness and also maybe the stretch in a fly line, uh, well, in Cortland fly line, would, would come from the um, the polyethylene compounds that uh, – that you uh, that you extrude onto the the core. Yeah, it would be the, the the PVC is is what our jackets are made of. Now we do make uh, the liquid crystal series is made out of polyethylene. Right. Um, it is unique uh, as far as that line. It's one of I think one of the only clear lines worth the damn in the industry. It's one of our <laughs> best sellers. Um, we do extremely yeah. well with it. Uh, we do extremely well with it. Uh, you know, especially for tarpon fishing tournament tournament anglers down in Florida. It's, um, it's funny you mention that. I'm going to jump in. I, I was in Florida uh, in in May uh, 2010, and we it was just after the um, the Crystal PE from Cortland got released, and I, I went into Sandy Moret's um, uh, Florida Keys Outfitters, and on the shelf there was literally pegs and pegs of the Crystal PE in the um, in a 10, 11, and 12 weight. Like I, I counted them, there was like 60 of those um, of those mixed lines in those weights. It was it was just incredible. And everything else was sort of like, you know, ones, twos, and threes. There was a couple of those clear monic ones there. I know you can't say it, but I did. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the, the preference was for the Cortland ones for sure. You know, they were the, the industry darlings. People are jumping on those for the tarpon. Yeah, they're they're the best, man. I When, when I fish in Florida for tarpon, other than – maybe a nine foot intermediate ghost tip. All I'm running is, is the clear floater. Um, and, and we get some complaints guys always like, well, I, I can't see my line and, and I can't see. And I, and I try to remind them, I'm like, listen, when you're tarpon fishing, you should be looking at your fly and you should be looking at your fish. If you're trying to look at the tip of your fly line to tarpon fish, you're doing it wrong. Um, but that, you know, there, there are scenarios where, you don't need to see your fish and see your fly um, for other saltwater species, but uh, tarpon fishing is definitely uh, a game where you want to see your fly land. You want to see how that fish is reacting to your fly being retrieved. Um, you know, speed it up, slow it down, leave it, whatever the case may be. I don't think I've ever looked at my fly line during a retrieve tarpon fishing. So when I explain that to guys, um, it, it kind of clicks, but you know, listen, the line's not for everyone, but we're just happy to make it for, for a lot of the hardcore guys out there and, and people that really need it. Mm. Yeah. Um, so w- now that we've talked about the, uh, the liquid crystal series, it's probably a good time to bring up some of the other ones. Um, you know, I'm just looking at the, the saltwater catalog at the moment. Um, You've got the Tropic Plus, Cold Salt, a specialty series, and the and the classics, which appear to have like the triple threes and triple fours in them. 
Do you just want to run us through each of those? Yeah, so uh, the 333, the triple threes, those were the original fly lines, uh, original PC fly lines that Cortland made. Um, we offer those in uh, a trout taper, full floating, a saltwater taper, full floating, uh, type three, full sinking, a sink tip, and a double taper. Uh, I think it retails for like forty three ninety five uh, US dollars. Uh, with such a dynamite line if you're just getting into the sport, regardless if you're looking for a trout line, a saltwater line, a sinking line, a sink tip, you name it. So yeah, yeah those were those were the OG lines um, from years ago. Obviously, we've we've kept those around forever. We do extremely well with those. Um, and then progressed into the 444 series lines, which, um, you know, the Peach, the SL, the Silk, the Clear Camos, those are by far our best sellers. Um, they have been for, for years. Everyone continues to purchase those that purchased those, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. They got their kids on them now. Uh, I've never heard a bad thing about those lines. Everyone just tells me, like, listen, thing just works, so I, don't, I, I just continue to buy them. And I don't really blame those guys, but th that series, basically, you're talking handful of different tapers uh, for trout tapers. you got a saltwater taper in the mix, some full sinking lines in, in a type 3 sink rate, a type 6 sink rate, uh, some 10-foot sink tips in a type 3 and a type 6. Uh, the clear camo intermediate, which is by far the most popular intermediate, a clear intermediate, the ice blue intermediate. Um a couple different yeah. style trout lines with some aggressive tapers, uh, some true line sizes, some half line sizes. Uh, just a really, probably one of the most wide range, mid-level priced fly line offerings in the world in the 444 series. And, yeah. you know, we'll keep it that way. And then we progress up into the rest of the, the, the crown level series items, like you said, with the trout series, the two-handed series, the specialty series, cold salt, you name it. I mean... Obviously, those are pretty self-explanatory, you know, series-wise, the streamer series. Um, depends on really where you are in the world. Some of those are a little bit more specific to the U.S. market. Some of those are pretty generic across, you know, the entire world. Um, you know, and then the Tropic Plus series, which is obviously geared towards your, your more extreme heat uh, fishing conditions. Uh, Brooks, mate, I might take you to um, one of the most... Um uh, undersung parts of, uh, of, of, of fly fishing is the, the backing. Um, recently I was introduced to the hollow core backing, which I thought was, um, you know, I didn't take much notice till I had it explained to me and I tried to explain it on the show here for a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could offer a better explanation from scratch in regards to a bit of information about the hollow core. Yeah. So the number one thing with the hollow core backing is your connection between the backing and the fly line is there's no knot involved. Um, and you could kind of say that if you, well, actually you couldn't. I was going to say if you put a bimini twist in your gel spun or your micron backing and you loop-to-loop -loop connection, uh, your fly line rear loop to your backing, but technically bimini twist is a knot. So the the spliceable holocore fly line backing, it's a 16 carrier backing, meaning there's 16 individual fibers that make up the backing. And it's not braided into a solid weave. It's actually made to open up when compressed, kind of like a finger trap puzzle. Does that make right. sense? Mm -hmm. So 
you open up the braid a little bit and you serve the rear end of the fly line. You'd be cutting your precious little rear loop off the fly line before <laughs> you did this. And you serve that up inside the braid. Um, I've had guys that uh, do this. Now, we got this idea from the uh, the tuna fishery, the giant bluefin tuna fishery. We make a hollow core backing for them. I had a guy that only served 130. 150 pound fluorocarbon 18 inches up inside 200 pound hollow core braid and landed i think 15 fish on it last year so my point is is you don't need to go up very far inside of the braid with your fly line fly line you say four feet is is about max you don't need to go any more than that you honestly can go much less than that but let's say three to four feet mm. and once you serve the fly line up inside of that, we use a product called Daho Needles, D-A-H-O, and you can look them up online, but it's a hollow needle. One end goes in inside the backing. The other end is hollow where you insert the fly line through, and that's how you would serve it up inside of the braid. So once you come outside the braid with the needle, your fly line's trapped inside. You basically draw the slack down out of, <clears throat> out of, the, uh, out of the braid, and that 16 individual carries of the braid, it, it literally much locks down around the fly line. And the harder you pull, the more it compresses. So it's virtually impossible once you draw the slack out for it to slip. So one of the things that we do, and there's two ways to do it, you can whip finish that juncture between the braid and the fly line where the braid ends. Um, you can use a waxed nylon floss, um, you know, some guys use a bobbin with uh, some some fly line or some some fly tying thread. Uh, some guys use some like 10, 15 pounds super braid. Um, I've honestly super glued the last inch and a half of the braid a little bit onto the fly line. So when that's leaving the rod, you don't get those fibers kind of splaying out and catching the rod guides. Yeah. I've I've landed over a dozen salmon between 25 and, and well over 30 pounds uh, with, with that hollow core, just super glued up inside there. Uh, I have a couple friends that, uh, commercial fish for big eye tuna. They did the same thing. They serve fluorocarbon up inside the, the hollow core, super glued it. And he's like, dude, I, I fished for four days like this, forgot it was even super glued. So, um, the quick and easy way is super glue. Correct way is to whip finish it. But again, you have zero knot involved uh, it's virtually impossible to slip if done correctly. And when you're talking about big giant species like tuna, marlin and GTs and anything else out there that I'm not thinking of, it's by far the most premium backing and smartest choice that you can put on your fly line reel. The best part is, like I said, it's not braided to a solid weave. It's kind of flat under tension. So you actually get way more capacity on your reel than you would think um putting 60 pound hollow core backing you're like wow that's going to take up a lot of space but the way it lays because it's a hollow weave is it lays completely flat until you splice something up inside of it so the the capacity you don't lose uh the strength you're obviously gaining zero knot involved in the situation and it's just I'm telling you, man, it's it's the correct way to do it if you're serious about targeting some large uh, inshore and offshore fish. Well, like, like I mentioned to you before, we you know, heated up the mics there. Like tuna fishing is a big part of the, the culture for us here. Uh, one of the things I noticed when when I recently spooled up with the Holocore 
was also that it's 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 much gentler across your fingers when you're guiding the backing back onto the reel as well. Um, oh, there's there's yeah. a reason for that, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's it's obviously less rough than a four carrier braid, six carrier braid, eight carrier, 10, 12, you name it, right? So the more individual fibers that you have in the braid, the smaller they are, the smoother they are. Um, I always tell guys, they're like, oh, you know, I use gel spun will cut your fingers or use gel spun because Micron will cut your fingers. Listen, if some fish is tearing ass and you're getting dumped into your backing, Anything you touch your finger to is going to slice your finger off. Whether it's a fly line, braid, hollow core, it doesn't matter. It's like and a if bandsaw. it doesn't cut it off, it's it's gonna burn it. You know what yeah. I mean? So I always get guys like, "Oh, don't use that; it'll cut your finger." I'm like, "When have you ever touched the backing on your fly line reel as you're just getting smoked from a fish?" And the answer is never. I hope. Um, but yes, that stuff is super smooth. Um, it is a little forgiving if you do make that mistake, but um yeah it's it's super smooth to touch and and super forgiving yeah it's more like for me guiding it back on like i like to you know like lay it back on crossing over itself so it doesn't cut into itself oh 100 100 if you get sorry no you're fine if if you get stretched out by a big fish you got to make sure that your backing is going back onto the reel as you reel that fish back in or let's say you pack that line super tight on your reel before you go fishing so it doesn't bite into itself you get dumped a few hundred yards out the fish breaks off now you have zero tension on your reel and you got to reel all that backing back in yeah that whole crisscross method um to make sure that doesn't bite into itself i'm i'm totally with you on that and that's that's a great way and you know that that braid is is nice the way it lays especially when you're guiding it back in on your finger like you said Mm. There's one other advantage that uh, I guess is explained by the the amount of carriers there as well is the abrasion resistance in comparison to you know le- lesser picks I guess you could say. Yeah, you definitely you got 16 chances to screw it up compared <laughs> to 12, 8, or whatever whatever the the carrier size is. So yeah, you know if you get a little bit of a fray, um, you know it's it's better to have it on a on a carrier system like a 16 carrier than it is lesser and that's basic math here boys 16 is mm. better than 12 better than eight better than four um mm. you might spend a couple extra bucks to do it but it's a spectra fiber which is one of the world's thinnest most durable longest lasting fibers uh in the world and it's not going to rot it's not going to deteriorate um it'll last on your reel for pretty much as long as you want it to. Um, it's, it's well worth the money and, and you don't have to think about it once you put it on there. You notice, uh, oh, sorry, you, you mentioned about, uh, the served connection, uh, for the, for the rear end of the fly line. Um, and I, I wanted to bring up if anyone's listening to this and, and, and realizes that you're saying it in that circumstance, you're essentially marrying the, um, the fly line to the, to the backing, which is great, you know. If um, you know, it's a it's a fantastic connection, seamless as as you mentioned. But uh, I've set mine up to to be a rear loop to loop as well, and um, creating that loop in itself into the hollow core, I've noticed is is again with those the same needles that you mentioned um, is very easy as well. Um, yeah. Sorry, not the same needle. Oh, did I use the hollow? T- I, I followed a, the. Oh, sorry. Right? It, it's called a reverse latch needle. Yeah, that's um, right. Yep. And you're basically putting a reversed or blind splice loop, I believe they call it, in the hollow core. So 
the same loop that you would put on, let's say, a Dacron or gel spun braid with a Bimini twist. You're basically putting that style of loop in with the hollow core using a reverse lash needle called a blind splice loop. Um, you're basically kind of turning the braid inside out uh, with a loop and then sending it back inside and tucking in the tag end. Uh, and under tension, it's basically trapping the braid inside of itself, not allowing it to come out. Um, probably the second best way to use that hollow core. I definitely think it's a, it's, it's a little bit quicker than doing a direct splice and serving it up inside. Mm. Um, it's definitely easier to swap fly lines out doing that. If you like your pretty rear loop on your fly line and you want to <laughs> use the hollow core backing, I definitely suggest uh, using the, the, the blind splice reverse loop. And uh, you, can, you can swap lines out all day by doing that. Yeah. That's what I've done. It's, uh, it's, it's worked well. And it was quick and it was easy to do. Um, when I first got that backing onto a reel on the podcast, I shared information and I think we shared it on our Facebook page as well. And I'll bring it up again for those that are interested if they're hearing this for the first time about this, uh, about the back C16, it's called, isn't it? Um, is that correct? Yeah, it's called the Spliceable Holocore Flyline Backing. Okay. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah, Pete actually corrected me on that too. I think when I said on the show, um, I've done it again. <laughs> anyway, um, the video that you guys have made, the Cortland video, where there's the, the that young fella um, on the timber bench creating all these um, connections, is such a good video. It's so easy to follow. It's it's really well explained. I would encourage anyone to go and have a look at it. But you've got to you've already you've just mentioned there's a range of advantages to that, and I I really want to highlight this i suppose not so much to, to to push on anyone but you got abrasion resistance more capacity uh, and the and the and smoother more knotless connections i mean it's a it's definitely um it's definitely a, a backing that people should look at in my opinion i'm impressed with it that's for sure mm. um all right well um i think we're sort of getting to the tail end of the show and i want to ask you is it um is there anything you can reveal as far as new products that are coming up? Uh, 100%. Um, I think we're, we're on pace to wrap up the catalog this, this week. We're on pace to wrap up the price guide this week. So everything's going to be coming out shortly. Um, I guess you guys are going to be the first to know what's up with Corlin coming out. Cool. Um, so... Uh, a couple new Tropic lines, a full intermediate Tropic line, a new Ghost Tip Tropic fly line. Um, what do we have? A couple additions to our Pike Musky series. Um, boy, you guys are putting me on the spot. A, a <laughs> new range of uh, fluorocarbon leader material oh, this awesome. year. Uh, we have a couple new um, sizes of the indicator mono that we specialize in for the Euro nipping and the trout fishing. Yeah. Um, the Daho needles that I just mentioned will be available through Cortland. Oh, fantastic. Uh, they're, they're, they're not super easy to find online. They are, but they aren't, but we're just trying to make it easy for, you know, our dealers and distributors, um, to, to grab those. Uh, so those will be available. Um, we have a few new sync tips coming out for our streamer series, which is very popular. So we're adding to that this year. And a um, couple odds and ends, some additions to existing uh, products that, that we have. Um, just just a solid all-around range. Um, you guys got to remember, I mean, we, we do have the, 
fly fishing segment of our business. We do have uh, an entire entry level beginner fly fishing segment of our business called the Fair Play Series. Um, so we have some new items in there, some some saltwater flies in there, uh, some some combo outfits in that series, and then kind of a few products on our conventional braid business side. So you know, as as small as a company as we are, we're we're really big, uh, but we're really small. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's a lot of chaos, but it's a lot of fun. Hey, hey, Brooks, um, I'm a sucker for um, intermediate tip floating lines, and I find the prospect of a new one pretty mouth-watering can you drip feed me a couple more little uh a little uh tidbits uh, is it going to be um what, what's the what's the head taper and um uh is it um is it going to be low stretch yeah so it's uh it's a clear monofilament core it's a uh it's a replacement version of our nine current nine foot ghost tip uh -huh. um <clears throat> it's actually a a new taper design that we based off our uh, really popular tarpon taper. So it's a little bit shorter front taper, a little bit shorter of her body, but a longer rear taper. The line it's replacing um, was a little bit more subtle, longer head design, shorter rear taper. Uh, you really had to be good at carrying a long distance. This line with the shorter front taper, shorter body and longer rear taper, it loads up in close, super quick and easy. But with the longer rear taper, it allows you to just carry line accurately at a distance. Um, yeah. Like I said, it's a nine-foot clear tip with a seafoam green uh, body color. Wow. Nice. That sounds pretty exciting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll, it'll definitely be the tick. I mean, that line, I, I'm confident, will do well both for, for your market, for Florida, any tropic conditions, you know, permit. Um, yeah. You know, tarpon. What do you guys got? First thing got? I thought of was was uh, you know an ability to carry crabs. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. That you know, and and some of the tarpon flies that these guys are throwing down in Florida, um, you know, they they might have some weight to them. They might be they might be pretty large in some instances. Most of the time, they're 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 moderately sized. But yeah, some of those larger air resistant crab patterns. Um, I've also find that. You know what works well with is uh, some really fat poppers. Uh, even though it's an intermediate line, if you have a fat popper that needs to make some pretty good commotion and it's pretty buoyant, that tip almost wants to pull and chug that popper down into the surface as opposed yeah. to skipping it across the surface with a floating line, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it definitely works in those cases, depending on how you tie uh, some of your larger poppers. Um, it'll be available in a seven weight up through a 12 weight. So uh, pretty good range there if you're getting down into some smaller species and, and right up there into your 12 weight species. Yeah, right. Well, Brooks, it's sort of, I'm glad you brought it up like that because one one question I, I had sort of to ask you and I'd parked it, but then I thought I'll, I'll bring it back out now. Was um, Have you noticed any changes in, you know, the preferred flies in certain scenarios over the years um and how has that sort of uh you know changed what uh what fly lines are popular what what features people are looking in in a fly line then first thing i you know now that you mentioned the back taper on this um on this new um you know floating uh, intermediate um, um yeah i know what you're saying i mean for for salt water um 
I'm not too much of a nerd <laughs> or obsessed with uh with the with the fly tying side of the industry. I mean, I, I tie flies. Don't get me wrong. I, I tie almost all my flies, but some guys are very obsessed over that stuff. But what I have noticed on the saltwater side is the introduction or just more flies being tied with synthetic fibers. Yep. Um, they tend to soak less water and they tend to weigh a little bit less in the air. If that makes sense, they're less waterlogged. Um, I, I, I have noticed that, and, and those including musky flies as well, um, those flies, they, they, they swim properly. They look great, but because of the synthetic fibers, they tend to just, they weigh a little bit less, so it's might be a little bit easier to cast uh, a lot of these newer fly patterns and newer materials than it has been in years past. Um, so as far as the saltwater side goes, that's the only thing that I can really put my finger on. I mean, crab patterns are crab patterns, right? Like if you got to get that crab down, it's going to have a little bit of weight to it. It's going to be a little bit goofy. Um, I know that guys are starting to build some crab patterns. Uh, with kind of that braided mono look to it. Um, yeah, that flexa, Al flexa yeah, flexa pattern. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, what's his name, Alec Gerbeck, that, um, one of the guys that used to work at, on Alphonse Island all the time, and I think he ties one of those patterns, a super cool guy. I remember when he came out with that, it was pretty pretty damn cool looking and unique. Um, so, so there's some cool stuff going on like that, but... Um, the fly stuff, uh, as far as design based on flies, uh, the streamer fishing for trout has gotten big into like big meaty patterns for big, large brown trout. So there's definitely been a progression in making a little bit more heavy, aggressive streamer line tapers for larger, meatier flies. I, I'm not sure how much that market is going on in in australia but over in the u.s it's pretty big because a lot of the fish that we target for brown trout that are large usually are coming from a boat guys are in drift boats jet boats stuff like that so it's 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 a little bit different way to target them we just there's a ton of rivers in the u.s and and in the world but in the u.s there's just a lot of ways that you could find these big browns from a boat so the, the taper designs and, and, and the builds for streamer fishing has, has definitely changed. Um, trout fishing is trout fishing. Oh, a size 22 trico is a size 22 trico, so nothing's changed there really. But, yeah, I mean, the materials that guys are using right now um, definitely changing the game a little bit. I think it's making it easier to cast fly lines, uh, especially musky fishing. I mean, some of these guys are throwing – massive pike flies and i know the materials these guys are using now are way easier to work with and to cast than what was going on five six ten years ago definitely yeah uh, it, it's um you, you're saying that i don't know how much of that's going on in australia i i i can't speak for the for the trout fishing because it's nowhere near where i live um but there's a uh, probably a much larger part of the country that would be would would be would have been uplining um, existing fly lines to to meet those flies uh, and throw in the larger flies for some time, you know, and it, it just like we said halfway through the interview, just uh, adapting the grain weights through their understanding to suit their rods and their flies in that respect. Um, 
yeah so i mean like the 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 inception of the the new designs of the tape is like like again like that compact intermediate you know that, that's great for throwing you know like a, a six inch game changer for for saltwater species yeah at short and long distances you know as whereas normally we would have to pick a tarp and taper that might might be a little bit smaller uh, uh, lighter on the grain envelope to match the fly that we're throwing do you know what i mean so it's yeah. it's really cool to see the um the progressiveness of the Cortland fly lines out of the box, those grain envelopes for me personally are perfect. And I've never seen that before. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome to see. Yeah. So it's interesting. Sorry. I was just going to say, it's an interesting question. What, um, what Volti said, I was really interested to hear what you said there. And, and it's very interesting to hear that you're taking into consideration the flies that people are casting when it comes to the, to the fly lines as well. You jumped to that without provocation. It was really cool to hear actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember you guys had mentioned like the little toonie line and that line was like the, you know, northeast fly line years ago. But, you know, we get a lot of these larger bait fish, whether they're mackerel, bunkers, different stuff like that. And it just requires a shorter, more aggressive, overloaded fly line. And that's where that kind of evolves into that like compact intermediate taper with those juiced up grain weights and more or less it, it, it has to deal with casting style right like so there's certain fish species in saltwater where you don't have to have a subtle presentation and you don't have to be super accurate you just got to get this big giant fly out of the goddamn boat and put it in front of a pile of fish mm. and that's where those shorter more aggressive deep loading fly lines come in handy where uh it, it it's it's less effort to load the rod uh, there's a lot more line speed involved because the rod is getting overloaded. So there is a time and a place uh, for short, aggressive, overweighted fly lines. Um, you just you just got to know where to pick and choose those, and vice versa for you know your more subtle, accurate, smaller fly presentations. Mm. I think that's I think that's fair. Well, Brooks, I think uh, we have taken up a lot of your time and you've been very generous i've just looked at the time and realized i kind of expected this to go for a little bit over an hour but we're just about nudging two hours <laughs> it's very easy to talk about fly lines that's for sure um mate look again i guess i want to on behalf of myself and Vols, say thanks for making the time to come on again and um yeah look uh yeah thanks that's, thanks yeah. dude yeah. yeah i appreciate it hey uh chris one quick yep. question is that your uh, real profile picture on your Skype? Yeah, it is. Yep, that's me. Um, I've been meaning to put this picture up. It's come up a few times. We mean to put it up on the social media. I will. I'll do this after this one. But yeah, um, that's actually um, me with the parakeet there, and um, and my lovely wife with the assault rifle. Yeah, uh, velour tracksuits are a thing in Australia. I like the uh, the big defined stripe down the arm, and the Kenny Powers haircut. And uh, I think that pretty much. Um, paints a picture of, of the general and average person in Australia, and that's why I like to present it to you guys internationally as a representation of us. How old are you, Chris? I'm um, I'm actually 78, and uh, <laughs> in actual fact, I'm not 78, and that's actually not my picture there, Brooks, so I apologise for the uh, red herring. Um, oh, I, I, I kind of knew my wife was putting the kids to bed i go you got to come over here and look at the guy i'm about to jump on skype with right now so like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No, it's been a good icebreaker for a lot of guests. Uh, it doesn't often come up in the end, at the end of the interview. It usually comes up before it, but uh, I'm, a, I'm glad you brought it up. And I will do the listeners a favor and put that up online uh, as soon as. But um, I, yeah. lo- I, lo- I love it. I just I don't have the balls to put stuff up. Like, I, I think I'm funny. I Actually, I know I'm funny. I just don't have the balls to do stuff like that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of you for doing that. Mate, it's uh, it's it's my pleasure. I do that as a service. Uh, it's really awkward for me to do that, but um, but I I you know I bite my bottom lip and I put it out there for the greater good. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right, Brooks, we'll we'll let you go, and um, I'll um, I'll organise a signed picture of that one sent over to you guys. Surely you can hang it up in Cortland as a sort of have a your, um, uh, have your wife sign it too for me. Of please. course, yep. <laughs> Of course, right. I've got to uh, make sure she's off the firing range, but it, we'll get there for sure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I'll I'll figure out a time for you guys to jump on Cortland's podcast, and we'll we'll have a bitchin' time on there too. Awesome. We might. Um, all right. Well, when that comes out, we'll give that a massive plug. But yeah, folks, stay tuned. Uh, well, I should see. Keep keep an eye out for the Cortland podcast coming up soon. Yeah, maybe we'll. Uh, I'll, I'll get to work early. So you guys can get a PM shift in and be nice and juiced up for our, our podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, we can have a cocktail this time. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody Mary's in the morning. Don't really cut it anymore. Yeah. No, it takes a little bit to get after it. I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right, Brooks. Well, let's go. Thanks, All right, Brooks. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. And welcome back, listeners, to the outro. Uh, that was an absolutely fascinating, some would say engrossing um, interview for, for me personally, hopefully for you guys too. Chris, what do you think about it? Engrossing? Um, I know we gave a language and concept warning. I want to give a... Um, Another warning for the pronunciation warning. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah well, I did find it engracing as well, mate. Engracing? Know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to engrossing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no. Um, no, Brooks is a great guest and uh, very, um, what's the word when you, you've, you've talked? Verbose. Yeah. Very verbose <laughs> and, he's, and passionate uh, passionate and verbose in his subject matter, which is <laughs> which is really good for a guest from Master's Podcasters. It lets us sit back for a bit. Yeah, it uh, does. It lets you sit back and it also lets you absorb a lot of it because you know as, as a podcaster quite often you know sure we're talking to the to the guests and getting information out of them but some, sometimes you don't get to you know listen and take things in because you're thinking about directions that it couldn't take and you know other questions you might want to ask and you know talking talking with Brooks sort of rammed it home to me about you know why we all do this and you know the guys are passionate fishermen mm. you know can you can you name well not can you name but you know are you are you aware of any other you know, uh, VPs of, of fly fishing companies that are out there, you know, actively fly fishing as much as him with, with such a love for it. It's There's incredible. not many. There's a few. I can't think of anyone in a, in a fly line company at least, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I realise it's pretty pretty evocative statement, but yeah, well, prov- provocative statement of me there. I apologise. But yeah, he's, he's out there doing it. I love it. Um, you know, listening to Brooks talk talk about the history of... of um, of Cortland is just amazing. There's such a long heritage there that you know, and, and proudly American the whole way. 
uh, their, their name, Cortland, is named after literally the, you know, the town or city that they're in. Mm. Um, they employ a lot of local people. Um, they support the, um, the, uh, the U.S. tackle trade and, you know, the global tackle trade. They're a name that's been around for a long time mm. and they've done some fantastic stuff over the years. I think one of my first lines was a Cortland line. It was a triple trip. Triple three HT or, or rocket taper, sorry. Yeah, you were talking about that, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was. Yeah. Um, I used to use that for, um, you know, trying to catch mullet on bread flies and stuff like that. You know, mm. sort of, you know, jungle missions or casting on the grass when you wanted to. You know, you're worried about chopping up a line. I never managed to chop that line up on the grass. It was mm. pretty damn good. You know yeah. what? Your review just sounded like you re- you did a book review by reading the back jacket cover. Then it was it was it was quite. To the point. Oh, really? And, and it made me feel like you read the whole book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, um, <laughs> nah, books is really good, man. I, I, I enjoy it. And he, uh, he handled all the technical questions that we threw at him as um, really well. Yeah. Maybe we've redeemed ourselves in the pilot episode with this one. Oh, uh, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, with, with someone like with Brooks on, with his expertise and his, you know, um, he was such a clear communicator, wasn't he? You mm. know, it was it was easy to to listen to, and um, you know, I, I like I said, quite enjoyed it. Got a lot of information out of it. Um, fascinating direction they're heading in. You know, with their uh, with those, some of those new products he dropped hints about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the release of those. Um, yeah, pretty cool company. Um, I tell you what, next time I'm buying a fly line, I'll be having a real close look at. You know what what Cortland have to offer in that particular scenario I'm buying for. So yeah, I think yeah. I think what you're getting at is it's it's easy to connect to that brand when you hear that the guys behind it are fishing, yeah. uh, passionate about it, aren't churning it out, mass produced. You know, yeah. I'm sure they're trying to handle as much volume as they can do, but um, all the development stages are in in house. Sure. You could imagine like a shed full of fishermen bickering about fly lines. You know, it'd be um it'd be pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah look, uh, tell me what um. I want to do I want to do some uh, some empowerment bass. It's that time of year. This should be starting to school up, settle down a bit. Mm. Um, I know you've fished for empowerment bass with with cordon lines. Which um, which one would you recommend? Compact six. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. I really like it. It's um it's got an intermediate running line, a fast sink head. Yep. Um, when it sinks down, it's got dense, densely compensated head, I should say as well. Which yep. is, so it sinks on, on an angle. So if you if you could imagine. Um, being a diagonal line to, to the end of your fly. So like a straight line? Straight line, yeah. yeah so yeah. it enables you to, um, so the intermediate line almost hangs that up. You know, we talk about uh, multiple, multiple density compensated lines, if you like. Yeah. And that's all that really is. It's just like a, a slower sinking bit as it, as it progresses closer to your reel, essentially. Yeah. Um, the intermediate line just picks it up and it will, when you start stripping it, it starts pulling a nice diagonal line and keeps you in contact with that bass vampire beautifully. You know? And what's the advantage? Is that better bite detection, better hook sets? Yeah, every, yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Like there's times where you might be drifting over school in winter particularly where you know, you're know you you're doing slow strips. You might have a two or three second pause, but if you'll keep in contact with your line, which you will if you're drifting away from the school, yeah. um, you know, you'll feel every bite when you've got that straight line to it. If you've got some lines will, um, will um, you know, get quite a bit of a belly in them and, yeah. and, that, and you won't feel anything. The fish yep. might hook themselves occasionally, but you'll miss more than you'll hook. That's for sure. Sure. They got the other one. There's a, a I can't remember. I think it's a four four four, like a full sink line. Yeah. It's also density compensated, but I would I would use that as well. But I think the compact six is really good for depths. I'm going to say it's in feet because my sound is in feet because the, the fly lines yeah. sink at six inches per second. Um. So I count them down. But I think uh, anywhere around 
18, you know, 15, 18, 30, 30, 30 feet, yep. you know, compact six over that, full sink line will do the trick. The seven pounds are pretty deep. What do you got there, mate? I've got one of your reels here with, is that it there with a sort of a dark head? And yep, a that's the compact six on that. Bright green, almost saturated green running line. Looks really easy to handle. Is it smooth with cold, wet hands, like yeah. winter hands? Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I, um, I've used it in winter a few times. I've had that line through summer too. That, like when we're talking about on the podcast in regards to that temperature versatility coating, yeah. um, I didn't pick him up on it. I actually was going to, but I let him keep talking in regards mm -hmm. to one of the considerations for temperature is actually the line being on the deck of your boat. Yeah. And when you got early in the morning and the sun might be up, but the water's still cold or, or vice versa, yep. um, having that temperature versatility coating is not only catering for the temperature of the water, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. You ever, have you picked up one of those reels before? <laughs> I have, yeah. I have, have you? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew you were coming around to Savo. I um, I, I, I was always, it's always out in the boat. You can see I've still got that rod out from that last time I talked about going fishing. Yeah. The glass rod there, but that um, um, the C three Shilton reel. CR three, mate. CR three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, great. What does reel. that stand for? Shilton CR three. I don't know. It's CR. Like maybe it's a um a protocol droid. You know, I don't know. Chris Ranger. Oh yeah, cool man. Yeah, he speaks <laughs> speaks Ranger in seventeen different languages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And here's the uh, low tick. The T low tick. The T. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Uh, again, folks, pronunciation warning here. Yeah. Yeah. Low tick. TNT low tick. Yeah. That's one that glass rod you we spoke about in the previous That's episode. Right. Yeah. When you say low tick, it sounds like I'm going to get my low tick. Now go away quickly. I'll hit you with a large sum of money. It's a <laughs> <laughs> uh, you sound like Prince Andrew there, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, now I'm stumped. There's really, there's really nowhere to go with that one. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, what do you reckon we wrap it up, Prince Harry? What? <laughs> That's my turn to get slayed. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> see ya. All right, see ya. Like a rock, like a planet, like a fucking by the joy and the madness that I encounter everywhere I turn I've seen it all along In books and magazines Like a twitch before dying Like a pornographic scene There's a fire behind the window That's an ugly laughing man Like a hummingbird in silence Like the blood on my it's a generator Oh yeah, oh yeah, like the blood on my nose be clean and I will run until I reach the shore. I've known it all along. Like the boat under my skin. Like actors in a photograph. Like paper in the wind. There's a hammer by the window. There's a knife on the floor. Like turbines in darkness. Like the blood on my door It's the generator